on this Good Friday celebration, as we reflect on the goodness of God's grace, our scripture comes to us from Mark chapter 14 and 15. We'll be reading excerpts this morning. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two disciples and he said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came to the city and they found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then they came to the place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. And he went a little further, and he fell on the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, Not what I will, but what you will. Now Jesus' betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. And as soon as they had come, immediately he went up to Jesus and he said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. They laid their hands on Jesus and they took him. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests elders and scribes. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent and he answered nothing. And again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, and he said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And then some began to spit on him and blindfold him and beat him and say to him, Prophesy! And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus and they led him away to be delivered over to Pilate. And that was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above him. The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And so the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, 
blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking amongst themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross. May we see and believe. And those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that, they said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, and they put it on a reed, and they offered it to him to drink. And they said, Let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a kid, I did not understand at all why they called it Good Friday, because it seemed quite a bit like anything but Good Friday. But it is good for us. And all the religions of the world essentially have various teachers and sages or scribes or prophets who are saying, this is the way to salvation. This is how humanity works their way up to God. But in the gospel, we find that it is our God who comes all the way down to us. In all the various religions of the world, the deity sits back, arms crossed, and tells you what is required in order to be accepted. Our God does not sit back, arms crossed. Our God comes to us, arms stretched out, and does everything, moved heaven and earth, in order to do what is required so that we could be accepted and loved and embraced by him. The nature of love at its core is costly. Every relationship with which you say that you love somebody, that love costs you something. It is the very nature of love, which is, by definition, oriented away from the self. And so this is Good Friday, because at the cross we find our God completely oriented away from himself and towards his beloved creation, those whom he loves. If you say that you love somebody, but you're not willing to inconvenience yourself, and you're not willing to pay any sort of a cost, that isn't love at all. And at the cross, we see that God was willing to pay the ultimate cost. He would spare absolutely no expense. That love, according to the agape love of God, is your benefit at my expense. This is all taking place at the Passover. The celebration that's commemorating the defining moment in Israel's history when God sent the 10th plague on Egypt, passing his judgment. And at that first Passover, God made a way to be spared judgment. And the way to spare, be spared from judgment was to trust in his provision, trust in his sacrifice. Anyone who trusted in his sacrifice provided by God would not face the judgment of God The judgment passed over. All of the sin of the people passed over. So they called the lamb that was sacrificed on that first Passover, the Passover lamb. 
And at the Passover, they put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And then they cooked the meat and they ate it. And they ate this Passover meal with their family. In other words, they didn't just acknowledge God's provision and sacrifice in an external way. They actually consumed and received his provision and his sacrifice in a very personal, internal way. They fully embraced and became one with that substitutionary sacrifice. And the one that was presiding over that Passover meal would always say something like, this bread is the bread of affliction which was eaten by our forefathers in the wilderness. And they said something to that effect for generations. And here's Jesus presiding over the Passover meal. And you can imagine being there, praying a familiar prayer that you would have said since a child. Much like in our liturgy when we can mouth the words of the liturgy as we get, become more familiar with it. You can imagine the disciples all sitting there, uh, imagining to hear, this is the bread. And they had almost finished the sentence of affliction. But what they hear is, this bread is my body. Jesus inserts himself in the center of the Passover meal as the ultimate sacrifice, as the ultimate Passover lamb. He inserts it even in, by interrupting the liturgy that they would have been so accustomed to at the table. And he presents himself as the one who would lead humanity on the ultimate exodus from our common enemy. He would be the one that would lead us as we trust in him from death to life to ultimate renewal. Bringing the ultimate satisfaction to the deepest cravings and longings of the human soul. These things are found in Jesus. That the renewal of life and cultivation of civilization that we long for is ultimately found in him and will be brought by him. And just as the first Passover was observed the night before God brought the deliverance from death. This Passover is being observed the night before God will bring deliverance from the ultimate finality of death. And he will do it through the blood of the lamb. And it's important to remember that the Passover meal is not a vegetarian dish. All four gospel writers mention the bread and they mention the cup. But they don't mention the lamb. There's no mention of the lamb that would have most certainly been on the table. It's like they're using a literary device omitting the mention of the Passover lamb because they want us as the readers to receive the truth that the lamb is not on the table. The ultimate lamb is sitting with them at the table. And traditionally, you would eat this Passover meal with your family. It was a big celebration. You would get together. You would have a big meal. You would celebrate your deliverance. You would celebrate God's great grace. You would celebrate his saving goodness. And you do that with your family. And all of these disciples have family. So what is Jesus doing? By the sheer fact that he doesn't send them all home to be with their family, it reveals to us that around the Lord's table, he is instituting a new family. He is instituting the basis for a unity of a new family. It is profound and deep and, and, and glorious what he's doing here. The basis for unity of this new family. He's setting the stage. It's what God has wanted since Genesis. That all the nations of the world, every culture, every tribe, every tongue, would live in a glorious sense of unity with, with him. This is going to be, spoiler alert, fulfilled at Pentecost 50 days from now. As you do see the glorious gospel uniting the nations. But right here, he's setting the stage. And he's saying the basis for that unity is going to be around him and his grace. And his, uh, <clears throat> the renewal that he will bring through his death. And his eventual resurrection. And this is why here in our church. The people sitting around you. The unity in this room. 
It's not based on socioeconomic position. It's not based on hobbies and interests. It's not based on level of education or no education, book book smart, street smart. It's not based on your particular political leanings. We're not a place that gathers for worship because all of the people here lean a particular way. Those things may be a cause and reason for having uh, close and intimate relationships around common ideologies or values. That's not the basis for our unity. The basis for our unity is Christ alone. The bread, the cup, his body, his blood. It's a glorious picture. And it's at the table that we are united to Christ and we celebrate our union with Christ and we recognize that by that we are united to each other. And the text moves from this Passover meal to the Garden of the Gethsemane where we find Jesus in anguish and he's surrounded by sleepy friends. This image of the disparaging difference between God's immeasurable generosity and human inadequacy. You and I have been let down by people and it's difficult to move towards them after they let us down. You and I have been betrayed by people and it's difficult to move towards them after we've been betrayed. You and I have been in sorrow and we really needed someone and they don't show up for us and it's difficult to move towards people who don't show up for us. And here is Jesus being left alone in great sorrow and turmoil relentlessly and continually moving towards those who fail him because, of course, he is ultimately faithful. This gives us now a vivid record of the Son of God asking God the Father to change the circumstances. Let this cup pass from me. He's asking the Father to change the circumstances, and yet, at the same time, Jesus is not trying to take control of the circumstances. He is trusting the Father with the circumstances of his life. In a garden, in the first garden, they failed in the garden. They failed by a tree asserting their own self-will. Now in this garden, Jesus Christ overcomes self-will and trusts in the goodness, in the wisdom, and the infinite majesty of his Father's will. In that first garden, there is massive failure. And in this garden, there is tremendous and glorious divine success. Because on a tree, damnation was brought to humanity. On this tree, of the cross, deliverance is coming. And then while Jesus is asking all of his friends to stay awake with him and pray, Judas shows up with a mob and they brought swords. Of course they brought swords because this is how you get things done. We've always, humanity's history, as I've been saying for weeks, is a constant exercise in bringing swords. This is how you swap out the power at the top. The same old thing ends up at the top. Politics, power, control. And, you know, John's gospel records that Peter takes out his sword. Because Peter's thinking it's game time. This is how you do it. And he cuts off the soldier's ear in John's account. He's not aiming for the ear, by the way. Just happens to catch the ear. And Jesus says, this is not the way that my... Put, put your sword away. Put away the swords. This is a di- completely different kingdom. I'm the king of hearts. And he heals the soldier. He heals the one who's come to arrest him and to crucify him and to kill him. The cross reveals... The upside-down kingdom we've been talking about for weeks leading up to this. The king of majesty and meekness. The king unlike the world has ever seen. And Christ is a king whose kingdom is cross-shaped. Self-emptying and giving and loving and restoring. 
The shape of the cross is the shape of God's love for us, and it's the fuel and the shape of our love for the people sitting in the chairs next to us. And the passage moves again to Jesus appearing before the courts. He's on trial for his life, and he's called to the witness stand. And the high priest asks him if he's the Messiah, and Jesus' answer was, I am, recalling God speaking to Moses in Exodus. And then after he says, I am, he says something so provocative, it causes an emotional explosion. All the priests knew the term. All the priests knew what Jesus said when he called himself the son of man who would come sitting at the right hand of power. It's a prophecy from Daniel. Jesus referred to himself as the son of man more than he did the Messiah, scores times more. He keeps using this phrase, the son of man, and they knew what it meant. He's claiming the power of God. He's claiming to be God, and he's claiming to be the God who's coming as judge. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He's not talking about water vapor. The glory and the power and the presence of God. While they stood there presuming to judge Jesus, putting him on trial, Jesus says to them, I am the divine judge with the power to put you on trial. That was his theological rebuttal to, are you the Messiah? And then the, the priests go full Hulkamania and they tear their shirts and they're like, what are we going to do, brothers? Because they can't handle this. It is incredible. The whole trial deteriorates into this religious brouhaha of all of the texts, of all of the themes, of all of the images that Jesus could have picked, of all of the metaphors in that moment. In the moment of his trial, he chooses judge. Christ the King, provoking everybody to see the paradox, provoking you and I this morning to see the paradox the judge over the entire world is being judged by the world. And he still is. And then the passage takes us to the cross and all four gospel writers make sure to let us know that it was eerily dark. It's around lunchtime. And from lunch until three, it's dark like midnight. And if tomorrow, if after this sermon, we left to go and have some lunch with our family and friends and celebrate Good Friday, and we went outside and it looked like midnight for three hours... We'd be freaked out. I mean, we freak out when the internet goes down for five minutes. I mean, can you imagine what humanity would do if it was dark? So they write that it's eerily dark. This image of judgment and darkness. And I know that as moderns, we don't like conversations around judgment. I don't want to take too much time to speak to this because I speak to it regularly. But if you happen to be here and you, so you're not going to go to church on Good Friday, I'm curious about Jesus Christ, I'm curious about the Christian faith and you're here and you're not a believer, I just simply want to say this. I understand that the modern construct of God is like, well, he would be more loving if there was no judgment. If just like everybody's okay. That God is not worth worshiping because then that means he's looking at all of the horrors and the tragedies and the injustices and the tears in the world, in your newsfeed, the, the things that make you grate your teeth and get angry, you're saying that a loving God would look at all of that and just say, it's all fine in the end. No, it's not all fine in the end. That God is not worth worshiping. Our God is a God of perfect divine justice that in the end, nobody's getting away with anything. And praise God that his justice is also met by his mercy. 
that you and I are not just victims of the sorrow and the sadness and the brokenness in the world. We are contributors of it. We have contributed to sadness and sorrow. We all, everyone in this room, we have contributed to being agents who have not been loving and caring. We have brought hurt into people's lives. There's not one person here who is innocent before God. And so this same God of perfect justice that in the end is going to make sure that nobody gets away with anything is a God of cosmic mercy that for those of us who will turn to him and repent and acknowledge and say oh god i believe that jesus christ is the king the one who came to take away the sin of the world and to bring renewal with his resurrection we receive scandalous undeserved mercy and so it is dark and it is an image of this injustice and this oppression and this and god is not winking at any of it And I want you to notice where God pours out his judgment on himself. This is why Good Friday is good. Where is your judgment, Christian? It's been absorbed by Christ. Why, every week when we come to the Lord's table, do I say we celebrate that the guilt of our sin is gone? Past, present, future. Look at where the judgment was poured out. He didn't pour out some of it and then reserve some of it based on your progress. That is not good news for anybody in this room. We are saved by Christ's perfection and he has poured out his judgment. And he poured it out on, his, on himself, on his son. And this now is the motivation to put off our sin. This now is the motivation to live to his glory. This is the atonement. This is the perfect sacrifice, the perfect sacrificial lamb, the culmination of all things. Not only at the cross is there this beautiful atonement, but we also see that Christ is victorious. And we celebrate that on Easter Sunday. That Christ as the victor, Christ as the ultimate priest, the the greater than the temple who goes to the cross, means that you and I are no no longer tethered to our old humanity, tethered to our sin. Forced, like slaves, to obey the inclinations inside us that would lead us to live in a way that is incongruent with God. This is Christus Victor, the doctrine of Christ being victorious over sin, which means not only is the guilt of our sin gone, but the grip that sin has is slowly and increasingly, over the course of our lives, loosening. So that more and more, we forsake our sin and we live to the glory of our Savior. And being united with Christ comes renewal, which is the celebration on Sunday. And I will speak to that then. The renewal that Christ brings with his resurrection. And remember this in this world of chronic disappointments. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, for the benefit of those of you that are visiting this morning, exploring Christian faith. If you're writing a legend, if you're just trying to mess with Rome and you're going to make Jesus into a legend. You don't have him declare that he's God. And then a few sentences later, say he's being forsaken by God. It's just bad writing. There's not a self-respecting Jew or Roman or Greek in the world that would ever worship Jesus if the guy claiming to be God in his next breath says, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? It's pretty good. Jesus is not a legend. The, the, the scripture is not, it's just a, some historical fable. As Christians, we're not celebrating a theory. We celebrate that God has done something wondrous in human history. In the beginning, we were damned by a tree. And now, at the cross, we are being delivered by that tree. For Jesus Christ, the cross is the tree of death. But for you and I, it's the tree of life. 
There's the tree of life in the garden. There's the tree of life that follows this garden. When we go to the book of Revelation and we see the metaphorical poetry of the renewal and of the new city and of the new, uh, of the new garden city, you find the tree of life. You and I live between those trees. And we live in freedom and liberation and hope like an anchor and security. And in all of the swirling chaos, we cling to the cross in our chaos. Jesus Christ and him alone, we celebrate him. Since the beginning, the way to God was closed and on the cross, Jesus Christ tore it wide open as the veil was torn from top to bottom because we worship a God, a loving savior who has come to us from top to bottom. Praise be to his name. Let's pray.